This morning's sermon text is Isaiah 9. I'm reading verses 2 through 7, but we will spend most of our time looking at verses 6 and 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. As with joy at the harvest, as they were glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, will justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are a sinful people. And as this book of Isaiah opens with an indictment spoken against the people, their hands are covered in blood, they've forsaken you, and they've made their religious practices into a show rather than into being about worship. We confess that we often can do the same thing, and that we know that outside of your Son, Jesus Christ, our sins are still upon us. We rejoice. You've given us your son, Jesus. And that's a, a wonderful, it's wonderful news that we have to tell others as we go out into the world and as we go to our jobs or go to our families or go shopping. We have wonderful good news to proclaim of a son who was given to us, of a child who was born wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I pray that you would give us understanding to see and your word. You would open our eyes to your word. That we might understand it and cherish it and love it and share it with others. That we'd find comfort and rebuke and instruction from it but also that we would find joy in the child who is in a manger that we celebrate, that would keep our eyes focused on his second coming. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's a lot in the book of Isaiah. There is a whole lot of context that is in the book of Isaiah before we get to chapter 9 or chapter 11 or even chapter 7 as we read 
The, the virgin should be with child. His name will be Emmanuel. And I sometimes fear and wonder if we miss a lot of that context because we look to these verses and they're great passages of Scripture that point us to Christ. But the book of Isaiah starts off on a very dark note where the book begins with an indictment against the wickedness of, his, of Judah. Where in verse 4... We read, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. And as we continue through that, we read of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, God tells them through the prophet Isaiah that your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This is a strong, heavy indictment spoken against these people. But it's not just left there. There's hope in this message, too. I mean, following that is where we read, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. And following that, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. So there's hope in all of this. But as you continue through the book, you get to chapter 2 where... The holy city is described as a whore. And there's a promise of the day of the Lord, a day of judgment, a day of terror. And judgment's going to become on Judah and on Jerusalem. And there's a promise in there of Assyria taking over. There's a promise of them being taken captive. And the book of Isaiah goes through multiple different kings. One of them is King Ahaz, who is a wicked, wicked king. And you can read about him in 2 Kings 16. But in the midst of this passage where we read of great hope, part of the reason that it's great hope is the people it's being spoken to immediately needed repentance and they needed hope. Because it was a very dark time. The verse 2 that we pick up on is the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And we get to read this in retrospect, and we know exactly what that great light is. We read this, and we come to, to think of how John, in his gospel, picks up this language on John 1. In John 1, 5, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. And John's referring to the incarnation, where the Lord Jesus took on flesh and became a man. And so we are very quick to read this passage through that lens. And it's appropriate because it's been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. But before I get there, I just want to press in how these people were walking in darkness and sin, and yet hope is proclaimed to them. And I had originally written a whole description of the context of Israel before, or the context of Isaiah, excuse me, before in my sermon, but Jim has advised me on Lord's Supper Sundays I should be mindful of the time, and we would have been here till 3 o'clock if I hadn't removed it. So, all of that to say, there's a lot of context in Isaiah that we unfortunately are a little quick to skim over at Christmas time, but to some degree that's okay, because we know how it ends. We know who this points to. 
And yet, at the text we're looking at today, there's something very specific that we, we see this text all over the place. Every Christmas, we see Isaiah 9-6. We see it in stores. We see it on, in our decorations. And rightfully so. There's even a hymn that contains, it's in our hymnal, that is just this passage to words. And another example is, you know, this Christmas we bought an ornament that had Isaiah 9-6 on it. The ornament's already broken. Um, <laughs> but since then, a day or two later, my wife found another ornament in our Christmas decorations that had this verse on it. So it's a familiar passage. It's a great passage. And yet, there's something in this text that as I was looking at it, as I was preparing, I, I thought to myself, we might take part of this for granted. And that's that there are four incredible titles that are applied to the promised son here. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Titles are extremely important. And so if we look at these titles, and it, it made me think of something that in, in the movie Sandlot, there's a scene where one of the characters takes a, I think it's a beef jerky stick, and he puts it in his mouth and he starts talking and no one can understand what he's saying. But what he's saying is, I'm the great Bambino. He's pretending to be Babe Ruth. And through this interaction, there's the other character, the main character of the movie, who has no idea what they're talking about but doesn't want to admit it. And so as he demonstrates his confusion, all the other characters go around and use different titles for Babe Ruth. And I, don't, I couldn't find out if they're actual real titles for Babe Ruth or not. Um, some of them are. Some of them I think they just made up for the scene. And they, they repeat the great Bambino, the Sultan of Swat, the Titan of Terror, the King of Clout, the King of Crash. And they're all titles that apply to Babe Ruth's previously undisputed record of him having the season home run leading as as the season home run leader until not this past season but the season before where Aaron Judge uh, finally passed that record without any use of performance enhancing drugs um, but with that the kid's afraid to admit that he doesn't know who they're talking about and so he just kind of goes along with it and yet what they're saying is for most of them these titles immediately communicate oh they're talking about Babe Ruth but for me, he has no idea who they're talking about. He enjoys his time with his friends. He likes baseball. But he doesn't know who they're talking about. So he just he pretends and he goes along with it. And if you're familiar with the movie, you know that later he takes his dad's signed baseball from Babe Ruth because he has no idea who Babe Ruth is. And he thinks it's some woman who signed it, some baby Ruth. Um, and yet, it's interesting because these titles for these other characters, they know exactly what they're talking about. It communicates something about Babe Ruth and about his monumental record of home runs in a in, uh, given season. And it's the same thing with any titles we use. Generally speaking, titles convey something about a person. And here we've got these four titles that are couplets, these divine couplets 
that communicate to us about who Jesus is. He's a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And yet as we look in Isaiah, a little bit back, something interesting happens. And something in 714, which is the other familiar passage we get to, Where we read, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so this sign is initially in the book of Isaiah given. uh, King Ahaz is told, hey, your faith and your alliance with the people of Assyria is misguided. You should not join yourself with them, but instead you should seek the Lord. And... Isaiah tells him, ask for the Lord of a sign. And Ahaz, in a sense of what might be an appearance of holiness, says that he won't do it. Um, but if, as I mentioned, Ahaz is a wicked king. And so the sign that Ahaz has promised is a child being born. The virgin shall be with child. And what's interesting is you get through Isaiah and as you get to Isaiah 8, a baby is born. Uh, it's born to Isaiah, his, his wife, a, he has a baby with a really weird name, Maher Shalah Hashbaz. And there's a certain point in which it might seem to the reader, oh, he was promised a baby, a baby's born here, good. Well, the problem is the baby doesn't really fit the descriptions that we get as we get to chapter 9. So some people have sought to say, that there might be an immediate fulfillment in one of four different babies, one of them being this baby here in eight. Others have said the child born to King Ahaz, King Hezekiah, who, if you know your biblical history, you know that Hezekiah was a good king. And it was a king we talked about in Sunday school as well today. And yet, there's an issue there too. When we look at these titles, we see mighty God, everlasting king, Those titles don't apply to either of these babies as they grew up. Hezekiah may have been a good king, but he's not an everlasting king. His throne did not endure forever. And so while it might seem at certain points that there may be a partial fulfillment, as we look more carefully and more closely, we'll see that the only person who these titles can apply to is Jesus. But yet these titles have seemingly paradoxical language. Because when we think about it, how can this child born be called mighty God? How can a child who is born be called mighty God? How can the son be called the everlasting father? And yet it's quite similar to the idea that's found in Luke 20 that we discussed in the spring of this year. How can David's son also be David's Lord? There's a quote that I came across this week as I was preparing that describes these four couplets or these four titles well. The surprising conqueror who works the stunning victory of verses 1 through 5 is revealed to be a child given, a son born, described unforgettably in a string of four couplets that mingle 
his humanity and deity in marvelous balance. And so with this text, with these four titles, we see that these four titles can only apply to somebody who has a perfect mingling of humanity and deity in perfect balance. So let's look at the first of these titles, Wonderful Counselor. And the slides are a little messed up, and that's my fault. Um, Dave, if you're able to advance the one that says Wonderful Counselor, you should be able to follow him from there. And so when we look at this title, this Wonderful Counselor language, it's a complex title. And I think, maybe I'm assuming here, but I think when we look at these titles, we repeat them and we think of them, but we don't actually dive into what they mean. And so when we look at wonderful counselor, again, all of these phrases have two words. They've got a modifier, and then they've got the noun, as it were. And this phrase, it communicates a mixture of describing the Messiah as the worker of wondrous deeds and the fount of perfect wisdom. In the Gospels, we read of Jesus doing many mighty and wondrous deeds. And we can, we can name them. We can spend all sorts of time naming them. Jesus turns water to wine at the beginning of, of John 2. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus raising people from the dead. We see Jesus healing people. Um, so many wondrous deeds that at the end of John's Gospel, he writes, if he were to catalog all the things that Jesus had done, it would fill all the books in the world. And in one specific event, when Jesus calms the storm, the disciples' response is, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They see what he does and they wonder, how on earth can this man do these things? And when Jesus teaches, it's the same. The crowds ask, how can the son of Mary and Joseph know all these things? At the beginning of Luke's gospel, in Luke 2, in Luke 2 when Jesus is still yet a boy, he's in the temple and he's asking questions and he's teaching and these teachers marvel at his wisdom. In Luke 4, his listeners are astonished at his teaching as he was one teaching with authority. It was a teaching unlike anything they had heard before. And it's upon witnessing these wondrous deeds and teachings of Jesus, the crowds are baffled and they're wondering how one man can do these things, how one man can be this wise, that he would do these works that only God can do. And he was teaching with his understanding, this wisdom that shows him as the perfect personification of wisdom as demonstrated in the book of Proverbs. And it's another of these titles that helps us answer this question. How can one man do these things? How can this wonderful counselor do these remarkable deeds, these wonders? And how can he teach in this manner? And that's because he's also a mighty God. And this title is one that demonstrates that this text can only be applied and fulfilled to Jesus. And even if that makes, or even if the text here almost reads as if the child born in Isaiah 8 might fit the bill, the only instance in which a child is born and is also called mighty God is Jesus. 
There's no mystery in the language here. The title here is clear. It's a clear reference to his divinity. Jesus is also God. And Jesus puts this on display in the Gospel of John, where he's got seven different statements where he says, I am, which is a callback to the Lord revealing himself and telling Moses his name. And in the book of Revelation, it's made even more clear, where Jesus takes language that can only be applied to the Lord God, and he takes language that can only be applied to Jesus Christ, and he combines them in one statement. And he does this twice at the beginning of Revelation and at the end of Revelation, where at the beginning, Jesus says that he is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. But then he follows that up with saying that he died and is alive forevermore. This language is carried back from the book of Ezekiel. And it's language that is exclusively applied to Yahweh. And Jesus applies it to himself there. So the speaker is clearly God. But then he says, I died and I'm alive forevermore. So the question has to be, when did God die? on the cross. And he rose again, and he's alive forevermore. So it's language there that's exclusively reserved for Jesus Christ. And it shows us abundantly that Jesus is this mighty God. But this title also conveys to us about Jesus' might. And while we're quick to think of Jesus meek and mild, we're quick to think of Jesus in a manger, especially around Christmas time, where he's in the manger, and sometimes it seems we just leave him there. And it, to reference another movie, and this is not an endorsement by any means, there is a movie, it's a Will Ferrell movie called Talladega Nights. And in there is this scene where they're sitting around a table and they're all talking about how they like to picture Jesus. And it gets a little blasphemous, but at one point, one character says, because the whole scene begins by their praying, dear eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus. And the response becomes, Jesus grew up. He had a beard. And it's, it's humorous, but then it gets into this language of, I like to picture Jesus um, as a ninja. I like to picture Jesus wearing a Leonard Skinner shirt. Um, and it, it, it's irreverent, yes, but it shows an interesting picture to how we picture Jesus. We often picture Jesus how we like to picture Jesus, which is why I say we often leave him in the manger. And yet he is a mighty God. And in Advent, as what we appropriately think of Jesus coming in the flesh and being born as a baby, we should also be reminded of his might, that he is going to return to judge the living and the dead. He will return in vengeance. He is a mighty warrior. This language of mighty God carries this picture of God as a warrior. So we think of the song that the Israelites sing that Moses leads as they exit Egypt. Moses sings, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And that's demonstrated as the Lord wins victory, or wins wars for them multiple times throughout their wandering in the desert, throughout their exodus from Egypt is God going before them and winning a war for them. And he continues to do so. In the same language of Jesus, 
is applied to Jesus, that Jesus is a mighty warrior who is victorious. He's victorious over death. He's victorious over sin. And one day when he returns, victory will be finished. And in Psalm 110, we read that his enemies are being made into his footstool. Jesus is victorious and conquering. But it's this next title, this everlasting father, where things get a little tricky. What does it mean that Jesus, the son of God, will be called the everlasting father? The Bible teaches of the divine trinity. We're shown that there is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons. That they are, as we look at Jesus' baptism, we see a perfect example of this, where Jesus is being baptized, and as he's coming up out of the water, the Father speaks and says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit is descending upon the Lord Jesus. It is clear that there is not one person there, but there's three distinct persons, but one eternal God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. There's no confusion of the persons, though. The Son is not the Father, the Spirit is not the Son, and the Spirit is not the Father. So when we look at this text, there's a question we need to ask. If Jesus is the Son and he isn't the Father, how and why will he be called Everlasting Father? And I know that's a little confusing and it might be a little up here, but I I think you all can handle it. And I want to make it as plain as possible because I think it's important. Jesus is the Son, but the text here says that he will be called Everlasting Father. So what's, what's the deal? Well, let's look at it in two different words, and then we'll put them together, and I think we can get through this and understand that it's a beautiful title, and we shouldn't be ashamed of it at all, or scared of it, or confused by it, maybe is the better way of putting it. So Jesus is Everlasting. Jesus has no beginning and he has no end. First and last from the language I just referenced from Revelation. Beginning and end. To reference the Council of Nicaea, there was never a time when he was not. Jesus is not a created being but has existed in eternity past. Yet each of us have come into existence at the moment of our conception. That's not true for Jesus. Jesus existed eternally before he was conceived in Mary's womb. And Jesus tells him, or Jesus himself tells us this when he tells the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. In Colossians, Paul lays out a thorough Christology. And in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Paul's argument here is that all things were created through Jesus and in Jesus. Or excuse me, and for Jesus. In him, all things hold together. And this would not be true if Jesus himself were not everlasting. Because if Jesus, as some people outside the realm of Christian orthodoxy were to say, if Jesus were created, then all things could not be created in him. You cannot have those two things together. Jesus is everlasting. 
And now, there's a second part of the title here with Father. How can this be true? How can this be true of the Son? How can it be true that the Son is a Father? And we don't think of this in our context of where I am the son of my parents, I'm also the father of my children. It's not in the same sense there. But it does describe Jesus' characteristics. In the language of this text, and in the title of Everlasting Father, they convey the same thing. It is the language of a king, the father of a nation. And as one commentator wrote, fathers were the heads of tribes who likely led the people. which would describe a king, but in an affectionate way, rather than one who they might think of as the reader of Isaiah would think of a king at this moment. They'd think of King Ahaz. They would think of a terrible, wicked king. And this language of everlasting father is getting at the idea of an everlasting ruler, an everlasting king, which should draw us back to the promise that the Lord makes to David in 2 Samuel 7. However, there's still yet another idea that can be conveyed in this title. Jesus is the father of eternity. This title could also be translated faithfully as the father of eternity. So this phrase, though, although we don't use it in this sense, it's not a very foreign concept. Consider when we're thinking of the founding fathers of America. We seldom think that We're literally the children of George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. Though some might be descendants of that, that's not what we're conveying when we refer to the founding fathers or when we we refer to the biblical patriarchs. We're not assuming or stating that someone is literally the descendant of Abraham when we discuss of that in a church context, though we do mean that when we're discussing of Abraham in the Old Testament. Or another example, if we think of someone like Adam Smith as the father of economics, we're not saying that every economist is literally his child, but rather that they are under his influence. So we get this sort of language. But even then, we still have to ask, what does it mean that Jesus is the father of eternity? And so returning back to the language of Paul in Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body. The church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So, this language that Paul's getting at with he's the firstborn from the dead, that Jesus is, he's risen from the dead. And Paul uses this language of firstborn twice. He says, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead. But he's not referring to a genesis, he's referring to a rank. He's not referring to Jesus being the first person to ever been raised from the dead, because we see Lazarus raises from the dead by Jesus' power in an earlier text, in John 11. At the same point, we're not saying that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. We're not saying he was the first created being. We've already demonstrated that can't be true. But rather, Paul is ascribing to Jesus all the authority of the firstborn of a king, and that he is the one who will inherit the kingdom. But as we look at 1 Corinthians 15.22, this gives us a helpful understanding of how we should understand this father of eternity. For as in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Adam would be the father of man, and that through Adam comes death. And it's a language that theologians describe Adam as our federal headship, that through Adam as our father, sin comes to all of us. But through Christ, we're made alive. Through Christ, we're invited into eternity. And it still conveys this language of Jesus as a ruler, as a king, as a king whose throne will have no ending. But it moves us to the next title, Prince of Peace. And this is the final title, but though it's the final title, I'm not quite done yet. Um, But it might still provoke the question, how is Jesus a prince when I just said that he was a king? Which, it's a great question, and it's a lot less confusing than the last one. Prince of Peace was likely chosen by the English translators for alliteration, and it's great alliteration. But not merely that. It's not a bad bad translation. Don't hear me saying that. But the word could also be translated as chief or ruler. Um, And an example of this is prince is also used historically in this this manner. An example... um, from biblical history is in the King James Bible. In the beginning, in the introduction, it describes King James as a prince and then four words later describes him as the king of Britain. So historically, the word prince has not been reserved only for someone who is the child of a king. But it does convey also someone who is a ruler someone who is a chief, someone who has authority. And Jesus is a ruler. Jesus is a king. Jesus is the prince of peace. But the peace part is interesting because when we think of kings, when we think of kings who conquer, we generally think of war. We think of kingdoms being taken by force. And Jesus will indeed conquer his enemies. But he has brought his kingdom through peace, and he has brought peace through his death. Through his death and resurrection brings us peace, or Jesus through his death and resurrection brings us peace with God. Colossians 1.20 tells us that Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. And yet through these titles were conveyed one significant aspect, that Jesus will reign. This is what we're told as we get to verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Israel's long-awaited Messiah has come in the person of Christ Jesus. As he was active in the creation as we read in Colossians 1, but also that his incarnation is promised in Genesis 3, as the serpent is told that the offspring of Eve will come to crush the head of the serpent. And this is what we need to understand and grasp today. Jesus is a conquering king who died and rose again to bring peace to those who were once far off and have been brought near. He is our peace. 
but he as a king will reign forevermore. So this Advent season, we rejoice concerning the baby in the manger, but we cannot forget that he grew up, he died, and then he rose again and sat down at the right hand of God where he is risen and reigning. And one day he will return to gather his bride, the church, to himself. But he will also be returning in judgment. He will punish sin, and sinners will be judged for their rejection of God's kingdom. I've heard a lot of people recently speculate or theorize that our country, America, is in its final act. And at some point, yes, all kingdoms fall. Israel, Judah, Assyria, Babylon, Rome, etc. All kingdoms and all nations, as we know, at some point will collapse. But Jesus' kingdom is different. Jesus' kingdom has no expiration date. And that should give us comfort. Whatever may happen here on our continent or on another one, we can take comfort in knowing that Jesus' rule and reign will never end. And if you're not a Christian, if you don't understand Christianity, then this is likely confusing. And honestly, it should scare you. Jesus' enemies are being made into his footstool. And if you reject his kingship, then when he returns in judgment, you will be terrified. Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, tells us to kiss the son or to honor the son, lest he be angry. The entirety of the scriptures show us that Jesus is a conquering king. And if if you are someone who does not understand that Jesus is king, who rejects his kingship, who's still living in sin, in ways that are contrary to what the Lord has told you in the scriptures, as we take of the Lord's Supper in a few minutes from now, I would advise you to stay seated and not take. But if we, if Christians truly believe that Jesus is risen and reigning and that his kingdom will have no end, how does that shape the way that we live our lives? Do we need to be afraid of what is happening in other countries? I mean, we should be concerned. We should pray for them. We should be knowledgeable. But we don't need to have crippling fear. As Christians, we can have great hope knowing that one day all of this will end, that all of the wars will be done, that Jesus will be victorious, and he is king. And sure, Jesus has promised us that people will hate us because of him, that there will be persecution, that things won't always be rosy. But if he's king, and if you know the king, then there is a glorious hope to look forward to. And if you know Jesus, if you do know him as king, then the question that I want you to walk away with today and to discuss as you're at lunch or as you're thinking and reflecting back on the sermon is this. How does Jesus being king shape how you live your life? How does it comfort you? How does it lead you to repent of sin? How does it lead you to engage with your loved ones? 
How does Jesus' kingship practically affect the way you live your life? We are able to walk into darkness and proclaim light by declaring the good news of Jesus. That he died to save us from our sins. He rose victoriously and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is king and we have the joy of telling people that. And so the next time you're looking at a nativity scene, you can tell someone that baby right there grew up and he became king. The next time you're somewhere and you see Isaiah 9-6 on an ornament and hopefully don't drop it and break it. That was me, by the way, not my kids, just for what it was worth. We joyfully get to tell people that those four wonderful titles that are listed there they apply to Jesus, and they're incredible, wonderful titles that show us Jesus' humanity and Jesus' divinity. And we can joyfully declare to other people the wonderful news that Jesus Christ died and rose again, and he is king. One final thing before we transition to the Lord's Supper. I told my wife earlier this week when I saw what the kids were doing for Sunday school, that it was Leviticus 16, I told her that I was so excited for the kids. If you were in Sunday school when we did Leviticus 16, you know that I spent two or three weeks on that, and it's just a wonderful passage. But what I found great, and I watched the video for the first time along with the rest of you, um, is when the narrator made the comparison between the Day of Atonement and Christmas. What a wonderful, wonderful comparison. Because in the Day of Atonement, they found cleansing an atonement for their sins. But Christ Jesus has provided atonement for sins once and for all. What a remarkable, remarkable piece of news we have to declare for the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your son, Jesus. We thank you that we've found purification for our sins, for our lies for our gossip, for our selfishness, for our hypocrisy, for our self-surfingness, in the ways that we seek to make ourselves king rather than humbly bow and acknowledge that Christ Jesus is king. 